you understand that as Jesus presents himself for baptism, he is not doing it because he has sinned. Jesus does not come to John as a sinner. He does not come to John needing to repent. Jesus comes to John sinless and yet identifying himself with sinners. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to Part 7, Prepare the Way of the Lord, a series from the Gospel of Matthew in eight parts by Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's text for today and tomorrow is Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Thus far in his Gospel, Matthew the Apostle has introduced Jesus by authenticating him, showing his earthly divinic line, his miraculous birth, and even pointing to his birthplace in Bethlehem, signs that are referenced throughout the Old Testament. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, hence his careful recording of Jesus' biography in a narrative filled with prophecies about the coming Messiah. Here's part seven of Prepare the Way of the Lord. We join Pastor Paul as he points out the critical role of John the Baptist. Before Jesus showed up on the scene, there was a forerunner known as John the Baptist. For the last two Sundays, we've considered his ministry as he prepared the way for the coming of Christ. And we saw that John came preaching a message of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He introduces us to Jesus as the bringer of God's kingdom. And of the utmost importance is that we would prepare for Jesus' arrival, specifically by turning away from our sin, turning away from all that dishonors God, turning toward all that honors him. That was John's message as he appeared in the wilderness. And then you'll remember he had a confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who challenged him. They presented themselves as being ready for baptism But John, perceiving all things, convicted them by saying, you're not repenting in the manner that I'm calling for repentance. Their repentance was founded upon something else, and so it wasn't bearing fruit. It was resting in past realities. Ultimately, their repentance was not founded upon an embracing of the Savior. And so any repentance that is not in line with John's prescribed repentance, one that first and foremost beholds the glory of Christ and responds in turn because of his coming kingdom, any other repentance brings judgment. That was John's message to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then, verse 13, Jesus appears. John has prepared the way And now we're told Jesus appears coming from Galilee to John. The first time in Matthew's gospel that he appears as an adult, we've seen him as a child, and now this is just precursory to him beginning his teaching ministry. 
It is a difficult text. It's one that many of you will be familiar with. Jesus being baptized by John. Don't allow the familiarity of this text to hide or to lessen the theological problems that it does present to us. Problems based upon the perceived hierarchy that John has laid out himself. One is coming after me who is greater than I am. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. And as this one appears, the first request he makes of John is that he would baptize Jesus. There is a a disconnect there that we sense. There is also a, a far greater theological problem, namely that Jesus never sinned. John is preaching a baptism of repentance from sin. Jesus never sinned, so how is it then he submits himself to this very baptism? As is so often the case throughout the Bible, as we see tensions within the text, they are not to be avoided, but as we probe them and consider them and pray that God would give us grace to understand them, they become the very means by which we are encouraged, edified, and exhorted to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see in this short text is so many theological truths that anticipate the gospel of our salvation, including the fact that Jesus came to obey his Father, that he came to represent sinners, Jesus came to suffer on our behalf, and that Jesus would one day reign as a risen king. All of those truths sit embedded within this narrative. And in all of them, we find God's pleasure. At the very end of this text, we hear God's voice from heaven. Very rare is this in the gospel that we would hear the voice of God from heaven. One place is in this text. God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And it's important to understand at the very beginning of our study in this text that God is not simply affirming the historical reality of Jesus' baptism. God is not simply saying, I am pleased that you have been baptized. But rather, this is a theologically loaded statement. God is affirming all of the gospel realities that fall out of this text. All of the wonderings that we could probe in this text, God is saying, in those things, I am delighted. I affirm my son because of all of the eternal truths that we see coming out of this text. Now, by way of application, if we find something in Scripture that God is pleased with, it should very quickly become an exhortation that we ourselves would be pleased with those things. Whatever is God's delight should become our delight. Whatever he is pleased in should become our pleasure. So I pray that God would lead us this morning in thinking through how he is pleased with his son and we would be pleased in like manner. The first reality in which we find God's pleasure in the text is very simply that he is obedient to his father. 
Jesus appears from Galilee, coming to John, so as to be baptized by him, verse 13. Understandably, John attempts to prevent the baptism, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? You can sympathize with John here. This is an awkward situation for John to be in. Jesus, I just had a really difficult conversation on your behalf. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are probably stood right there within earshot. Jesus, you're making this really tricky for me. I just told them about you and I said, I can't carry this guy's sandals. And now you're insisting that I baptize you. Jesus insists, let it be so now for thus it is fitting. For us, for you and me, John, to do this together so as to fulfill all righteousness. Now you can imagine there's an awful lot of discussion as to what exactly Jesus meant when he said it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does he mean by that? We need not overcomplicate the issue very simply. It means it is proper for you and I to do God's will. To fulfill all righteousness within Matthew's gospel carries simply the understanding this is God's will. God intends for this to happen. Matthew's gospel is a very kingdom-orientated gospel. It is the gospel wherein Jesus is most emphatically presented as a king. And so within Matthew's gospel, righteousness carries with it the simple understanding, this is what it is right to do by God. His will is that this should happen. So, as Jesus says, we need to do this. He is very simply presenting himself as an obedient son. Jesus comes obeying the father, doing the will of the one who sent him. And God has pleasure in that. Don't underestimate the value of Jesus' determination to do the will of the Father. Because in it, your salvation is found. Every single step of Jesus' earthly ministry, he is in exact accord with the will of his Father in heaven. Never once, any minute of any day of his whole earthly life, does he step apart from the will of the Father. He doesn't take a breath that runs contrary to the will of his Father in heaven. Every single thought that Jesus thinks, every single word that he speaks, every act he performs, every teaching he gives, fulfills all righteousness. Not simply here with his baptism, but the whole way through the gospel, Jesus is obeying his father perfectly. As we fast forward all the way to chapter 17, that is another point within Matthew's gospel where we hear the father's voice from heaven. And it should be no surprise that he says exactly the same thing. At the point of Jesus' transfiguration, the Father speaks audibly and says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And to emphasize, to draw attention to Jesus' perfect obedience, there he says, Listen to him. Give heed to what this man says, because he is fulfilling all righteousness. And the reason that matters within the economy of the gospel is because Jesus offers himself as a perfect 
sacrifice. He comes to the cross without blemish. He has his whole earthly life fulfilled all righteousness. And for that reason, he can at that moment function as an acceptable sacrifice for your sin. Anyone can be crucified. But if that person has one second in their life wherein they did not fulfill all righteousness, then their sacrifice on the cross means nothing. It doesn't become a perfect sacrifice for you. Or to put it another way, if Jesus had acquiesced to John in this moment. Jesus, this is really, really awkward. Everyone around us knows that it should be you baptizing me and not the other way around. And if Jesus has said, John, you know what? You're right. Let's do that. Then you would not be here this morning. You would not be reconciled with a holy God this morning. We depend on Jesus to fulfill all righteousness, that we would be reconciled to a holy God. Now, with all of that said, why might it be that God proclaims in him, I am well pleased. The pleasure of God is everywhere in this text. He is proclaiming his pleasure over all of the theological realities that hang off of Jesus' baptism. Not simply the historical fact of the matter, but all of the eternal truths that pertain to the baptism, in those things God is pleased. So why would God be pleased in the perfect obedience of his son? One thing we might say, as we've been thinking about consistently in the evening services, God is a God who loves his own glory. It is right that we have a self-exalting God. If it were not so, he would not be God. This is not prideful. This is not arrogant. God is God, and so he loves his glory. God will be glorified through the judgment of sinners and the salvation of the saints. On the last day, God will get glory through both the judgment of sinners and the salvation of saints. He will get more glory through the salvation of the saints. The apex of God's glory on the last day will come through the eternal congregation gathered around the throne of his son, whom he has redeemed through the blood of his son. So it stands to reason that as Jesus begins to tread out his, his earthly ministry, and he does so in exact accordance with the Father's will, God delights in it. The first hint of what is going to transpire from this man's life, namely the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in it God is well pleased. Our responsibility is to find our pleasure. In Christ's obedience. Leaf through the gospel narratives often. Determined to be someone who is regularly returning to the gospel narrative. Be reading all over the Bible. All of God's word is useful for correction, rebuke, training in righteousness. It's all good. 
determined to be someone who is regularly returning to a particular part of the Bible, namely the Gospels. And as you do so, and you see Jesus most clearly there, rejoice in his acts of obedience. Spend time pondering exactly what Jesus said and what he did and choose to respond in praise towards your Father in heaven for Jesus fulfilling all righteousness, acknowledging that in so doing, he's paving the way for your salvation. Train your heart by God's grace to delight in the fact that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, that your pleasure would align with God's pleasure. Second reality in which we see God's pleasure this morning, he delights in the representative role of his son. The representative role of his son. John consented and baptized Jesus. Now, we've already acknowledged that he does so in obedience to the Father's will. There is a note of simple obedience here, but we might ponder We might ask, but why? Why was it the Father's will to baptize his son? Why was it God's intention that John should baptize Jesus and not the other way around? And the short answer is to establish Jesus as the representative head of Israel. Let me explain what I mean by that. In the ancient world, there was a very clear understanding of a very strong relationship between a king and his people. There was a very clear understanding in Jesus' day of a strong bond between a king and his people such that you could speak of one or the other and both parties would be inferred. We do have this kind of thinking today in the way in which we communicate. It's just not as clearly understood so just by way of example, I might ask you, who, who won the swim race? Who won the swimming race? And you might say, America won. And of course, we understand, you don't need to state, America wasn't in the swimming pool. There was one athlete who was representing his country, and there is a connection between the two such that it is entirely meaningful to say, America won the race. Or we might say the president intends to go to war. You understand that in that moment, I'm not saying the president is going to walk on to the battlefield. But rather there is a relationship between him and the people he leads such that inferred is the, the nation or the armed forces. They're the ones that will be going into war. We have this representative role understood, implied in our conversation, even more so in Jesus' day. It is all the way through the Bible. In fact, you may even just want to read a few Psalms this afternoon and note how many times this relationship is found in the logic of the Psalter. How many times David, as the king, will pray something for him individually, and the very next verse, without missing a beat, he speaks about the benefits being realized for the nation. David will say, God, save me. 
That's a prayer that is praying on his behalf. And that's it. Save me the king. The very next verse, so that the nation will know the blessings of your salvation. Because there is a tight connection between the king and his people. Now, with that background, then, you understand that as Jesus presents himself for baptism, he is not doing it because he has sinned. Jesus does not come to John as a sinner. He does not come to John needing to repent. Jesus comes to John sinless and yet identifying himself with sinners. John has preached very clearly, you have to be baptized as an outward reality of your internal transformation of heart, turning away from your sin. That's John's message. Jesus shows up and says, give me that baptism, not because I'm a sinner, not because I need to repent, but because I want to anchor myself to these people. He'll do this time and time again throughout his gospel in the way that he speaks. He will anchor himself to those who he's come to save. Here, at the point of his baptism, he very, very graphically, through the immersion in water and coming up again, he anchors himself to the sinners whom he has come to save. And what will be true from now on within the theology of the gospel is whatever happens to Jesus will happen to his people. This is a wonderful encouragement on which you can meditate this morning. Jesus establishes himself in a representative role for sinners. And he does so fulfilling all righteousness. So just take those two thoughts together and see what that means for you. Jesus obeys perfectly, not simply so at the moment of his death he is an acceptable sacrifice for your sin, but so also... To carve out an ocean of righteousness that will be credited to your account. You see, Jesus' fulfilling of all righteousness renders him an acceptable sacrifice, certainly. But as he anchors himself to the people whom he's come to save, now they will be the beneficiaries of his upholding of the law. Stated otherwise, when you put your faith in Christ for salvation, what God does is he credits your account with infinite righteousness that has already been worked out by his son. That is what comes your way in the gospel. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. One of Pastor Paul's first preaching series in his new role at Bethany Bible Church is a big project, the Gospel of Matthew. We've been blessed in chapter 3 with Matthew's depiction of John the Baptist coming as a forerunner to Jesus and serving his Lord in baptism. The New Testament Gospels admiringly depict John the Baptist because he handed over many of his own disciples to Jesus after baptizing him, saying, He must increase, but I must decrease. Gospel writers record that King Herod took John's life at the height of his ministry but not before he would herald the Savior's coming. Christ's gospel was to be a gospel of repentance, like John's, and is fantastic news because its power can untangle us from sin's captivity. God's kingdom welcomes us then, and by Christ's resurrection power, we've learned to hate our sin and repent. 
You know, there's more to hear and room to grow on our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts for a free archive of Pastor Paul's teachings surrounding the good news of Jesus, including any part of this series you may have missed. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. As the weekend approaches, we want to remind you that if you don't have a local church to attend, you're always invited to be part of the worship service at Bethany Bible Church on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Hope you'll join us tomorrow for the concluding segment in our eight-part series, Prepare the Way of the Lord. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.